It's great to be back with you guys. Uh, I miss you guys when we're not here. You know, it's, uh, anyway, what a great service this morning. I appreciate all the talent that lies here. You know, you guys' trio was like blow away. And the Trout Quartet over here, I have a CD, a classic music CD called the, the, the I think it's the Trout Quintet, actually. So you got to find a fifth string person. <laughs> but man, just amazing. And I appreciate all the singing. You know, it's, we, sometimes we come in and we see these things and like, okay, people just pop up. And this takes practice. You know, people come together. They spend their time learning how to coordinate and sing together. It's not as easy as it seems. And uh, so I just really appreciate all the effort. Uh, that you brothers and sisters put into making this happen. <clears throat> and I appreciate uh, all the Christmas outfits and do you know how to do this thing, Paige? It's, it's, uh, yeah. uh, thank you. That'd be so good. This is not going to work for me, I don't think. But uh, so I wore my Christmas purple. Uh, don't confuse me for a grape. Um, it is it is Christmas. What was that, kids? Yeah, don't stop on me, please. Drew, thank you so much for reading that for us in uh, Luke chapter 2. We are going to park on that uh, this morning because I do want to talk about Christmas. I mean, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so I want to use the basis of what we talk about this morning from Luke chapter 2, and I really want us to focus on the idea that things are not as they appear. And that is the story of God throughout the scriptures. And I really appreciate Rob bringing forward to us this idea that even just reading, how many of us have gone to the books of the Bible and stumble into a genealogy and you're like, okay, we're going to fast forward through that. I got through three chapters today in my quiet time because I skipped over the genealogy, you know. <clears throat> There's a basis for this stuff. You know, not just the historical accuracy of it and to, to share with us even the story of all the people that God uses over the course of history. I think that's a big part of it but just understanding the cultural significance of God's word and what God's people are doing in spite of what culture may be telling them even within their own community. So as we dissect this a little bit, one thing I want us to remember is that the Christmas story itself is really quite simple and it's quite ordinary. In fact, it should capture for us this idea of insignificant. If you look at the elements that are going on in the story of the arrival of the Son of God, the insignificance of it, we could call it today perhaps this fancy word inauspicious. When was the last time you used inauspicious in a sentence? Last Thursday? <laughs> I think I had that for supper Friday night, right? <laughs> Inauspicious casserole, you know? But uh, over the years, I've learned to uh, really enjoy different kind of words. And, you know, I read a lot and have read a lot. Uh, so for those of you that don't like reading, I didn't like reading either. You know, I, 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 when I was, you know, through school and even going through college, I, I hated reading. And sometimes you'd have these classes where there was just intense reading assignments. And I love to get to the library and see if I can get the Cliff's Notes real quick. You know, but Cliff's Notes, unfortunately, can only take you to a C-plus most of the time, uh, if you're lucky. But fortunately, over the years, I've evolved, if you will, to appreciate 
and really like reading. And uh, so I find a new word and I circle it and I used to go get the dictionary. Now you have these smartphones and, you know, Siri, what does inauspicious mean? And it means to be uh, not conducive to success. Inauspicious means unpromising future, you know. So you look at the Christmas story, and it is kind of an inauspicious story, an inauspicious setting. Now, some might object to us saying that it's insignificant, uh, and from a worldly perspective, it would be, you look at this, and it, and it does seem really insignificant. But as disciples, we realize, man, how could the birth of the virgin-born Son of God be insignificant? How can, how can the virgin-born birth of the Son of God be insignificant? And the answer to that question depends on what we do with it collectively and what you do with it individually. It's up to us to make it significant. It's up to you. It's up to me. John chapter 1, verse 14. In that gospel, God inspires John to say through the Holy Spirit, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the Son of God has come to us in the flesh, full of grace and full of truth. And he is with us. Again, I go back to the question, how significant is the Christmas story to you, to us? So let's see how Luke, the only Gentile. What's the word, mimser? Mumser. The only mumser. Writing in the New Testament, Luke, the mumser, the Gentile, which means in Scripture, the outsider. We could go into some history of Luke, and I'll just real briefly that Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician. He was a historian. He was a smart, educated guy, and he traveled extensively with Paul after becoming a disciple, becoming a disciple himself. And he's referenced throughout several of Paul's later letters later on in the history of the first century church. You know, Luke wrote, well, let me ask you this. Oh, man, I blew this set up. I'm going to ask you anyway. So who wrote most of the New Testament? Holy Spirit. Man, that's a great answer. Woo, Chris. You still got to hang around for the rest of the sermon, though. <laughs> it is the Holy Spirit. Okay, all right. So Holy Spirit aside, what human being was the Holy Spirit working through the most to give us most of the New Testament? Somebody said Paul. Paul is an easy default. I thought intuitively Paul, too, because most of the letters and stuff we find in the New Testament is by Paul. Everything else is sprinkled around through a bunch of different authors. It's actually Luke. You knew that, Ken? Come on. But you knew Luke wrote most of it? You knew that? Most of the New Testament. Yeah, did you know that, though? 
know that Luke won't roast. You guessed. Okay. <laughs> you got to stick around too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was Luke. It was Luke. Luke wrote 27.5% uh, of the New Testament. 38,000 out of 138,000 words. I counted them last night. <laughs> no, I looked on my fancy device again. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, wrote 24.5% of the New Testament. And then, you know, Peter, Peter wrote less than 3% of the New Testament. Now, the funny thing is, if you attribute the writing of Hebrews to Paul, then Paul probably overtakes Luke. But, you know, it's not clear who wrote Hebrews. I tend to think Barnabas wrote Hebrews, but, amen, it's not a salvation issue. Don't worry about it. But here's what the outsider, the outsider Luke, tells us about this story. And we call it Christmas, okay? Christmas is just a, it's a Latin word meaning Christ mass, Christ thanksgiving, giving thanks for Christ. That's what Christmas is, okay? There's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt celebrate Christmas on December. Jesus wasn't even born in December. Highly unlikely Jesus was born in December. He was probably born in September, October. Okay? Again, not a salvation issue. Don't worry about it. Take your tree down still after New Year's. <laughs> Preacher said Jesus was born in September. Why take it down? You know? I would take it down. But here's what we find out. The first thing that we don't necessarily see in this Christmas story is ordinary places don't see ordinary places. The happening places of the world at the time were Rome and Syria. Now, Syria is more of a descriptive region. Syria was that part of the empire that was like east and separated mainly between uh, Italy, where Rome was at, by the Mediterranean Sea. But everything just east of the Mediterranean Sea was collectively known as Syria. These were the power places of the world. These are the locations where people ruled over others lived. And these were the places that mattered. No one cared much about Palestine, the region in which we're talking about, in which Jesus was born, in which the Jews primarily occupied and lived. It was tucked away in a small pocket of the Roman Empire. In fact, people like uh, uh, Pilate wanted to get out of Jerusalem as fast as he could. Interesting thing, if you ever go back and study the history of Pilate and the decision, you can see that the, the agony that Pilate went, he knew Jesus was innocent. And yet the political pressure of his time forced him to carry out the execution. Nobody wanted the word to get back to Rome that they'd lost control of a backward place like Jerusalem. Are you kidding me, Pilate? What we find instead in the Christmas story is the focus on little places like Bethlehem. Granted, in Scripture, we know this to be historically called the city of David. But Bethlehem, by this point in time, was insignificant. It didn't mean anything. Most of the occupants of the city were not even citizens. And today, 
Bethlehem is part of what's called the West Bank. It is a Palestinian country. It's not even under the control of the nation of Israel. Wendy and I had an opportunity to go to the church. Uh, I think it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus' birthplace is theoretically located. We were in Israel back in February. And we had, uh, on our tour bus, we had to go through high security to even go into the West Bank to get to the theoretical birthplace of Jesus. And the guards had to come onto our bus and inspect our passports. It's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. Guys, we live in a fragile world. Extremely fragile. I mean, the nation of Israel itself is surrounded by four nations that collectively want to wipe them out. You go to the city of Jerusalem today, and you got to go through security at various points. And you're like feeling like at any time you feel like a bomb could go off in one of these locations. I've seen better security at a bread warehouse than I saw in some of these security posts. Anyway, suffice it to say, we also have Nazareth. You know, the scriptures tell us here that Nazareth in Galilee, this is like saying, what, what county are we in here? Wichita of Sedgwick, you know, of Douglas. You know, these are cities located in regions, or in our cases, counties, we call them. And sometimes when you read in the Bible, it says that they went up here or they went down here. It's not really a north-south reference in the Bible, you know. Uh, geographically, we would say we're going to go north. We're going to go up to Omaha from here, right? But in the biblical phrase, if Omaha is at a lower elevation than Wichita, we're going to go down to Omaha. So when you see up, down, that's kind of how that works. It's a geography lesson, no charge. <laughs> but we see Nazareth, the place of Joseph's hometown, Nathaniel, one of the early calls of, of, the, of the 12, you know, he's calling and said, hey, let's go follow, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, when I grew up and growing up in Michigan, we would say, can anything good come out of Ohio? <laughs> Sorry for you Buckeye fans. There's any in here. And then we have a manger. And it's not the mangers we see on the beautiful Christmas cards by, you know, Courier and Ives. It, it's the hog trough. It's a, it's a stone bin with mortar keeping the rocks together with stubble and hay that they gather in off the fields so that the livestock, whether it's cows or pigs or sheep or whatever, have a place, has a place to eat. But it's mentioned three times in these 20 verses, lying in a manger. And just think about the irony of that. Jesus is referred to as the bread of life, and his entrance into our world is the bed of a hog trough. Things are not always as they see, seem to be. And then we have the fields where the shepherds are watching flocks. They don't even have a regular physical dwelling themselves. They sleep out in the fields. They find caves. They 
lay down next to rocks if they need to keep themselves protected from a big wind or whatever the case may be. So in, a sense, in, a, in essence, Christ was born down on the farm. But I want us to take away from this the idea that when God comes, when God comes, every little place becomes big. When God comes here, this place becomes big. The second thing I think we can take away from this Christmas story is ordinary people. I was thinking, when I was writing this down, I was thinking of that song I used to hear a lot on the radio back when I was in high school. I don't remember who the singer was, but it was like, takes every kind of people, make the world. Who was that guy, Mark? Uh, Robert Palmer, maybe, I think, was the guy's name. Yeah. Anybody remember that tune? It takes every kind of people to make the world go round. Where's the where's the tri trio? The trio. You guys can come up, you know. <laughs> takes every kind of people. <clears throat> you know, the important people again of the world are mentioned in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. These were the important people. They were the movers and the shakers. When they spoke, people listened. They could call for taxes, and the word was, so let it be done. People had to get up and go so they could stand up and pay. And who are our people in this story? A poor couple from Nazareth, Mary and Joseph, scraping to get by. And we got shepherds. Really? Shepherds? Now, if you don't know anything about the history of shepherds, it's not a great one. They're, you know, driving into Wichita last night. I saw a sign. I don't remember what road. Wendy was driving. I was doing different things. But I looked up and I saw this sign. Teachers Hall of Fame. Yeah. Emporia. Yeah. I never knew we had a Teachers Hall of Fame. Is that like for the world? Just Kansas, okay. Well, it didn't say Kansas Hall of Fame. It said Teachers Hall of Fame. I'm thinking, wow, Wichita is the home of the Teachers Hall of Fame. I've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame in, I think it's in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, I think I went to the Football Hall of Fame, but I'm not I don't remember. But it's in Canton, Ohio. Yet to find the Shepherd's Hall of Fame. But if you think about it, who's going who's gonna to foresee this kind of, of God moving in this kind of way? We've got ordinary places. We've got ordinary people. Rob and I did not coordinate this at all, but one of my note scriptures for here was 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were something special that the world put on a pedestal. 
doesn't say not any, it just says not many. You know, I think sometimes, I just want to throw this out there. This is free, too. This is not part of my lesson, but it's just kind of out there. Don't be intimidated socially, culturally, or whatever, reaching up. Because people that you think that are more successful than you, they're smarter than you, they're richer than you, they dress better than you, they drive a better car than you, don't you think for a minute that they don't need Jesus? And you talk about a life where things are not always as they seem. I have found, I've lived long, I'm 62 now. I'm 62. I can't believe it. Man, it just seems like yesterday or eight days ago I was 61. <laughs> but I've lived long enough now to know that there is rarely everything you see behind the scenes of what you see at the surface. I've seen more than my share of really miserable, unhappy, smart, rich, good-looking, nice-smelling, super-talented people who are lost, whose families are a disaster, who are empty, who are desperate. Just like we were at one point in time. And in a way, just like we should still be today, desperate for that relationship with God and with one another as God's people. When God comes near, all the little people suddenly matter. So we've got ordinary places, we've got ordinary people, and we've got ordinary events. the news here is taxes and a census. Taxes still make a big deal. But the birth of a baby, mm, not so much. That's a very ordinary event. For the disciple of Jesus, though, this is an anything but an or ordinary event. And I want us, I want us to remember this as, as we, you know, get ready to close out pretty soon. That's a primer like preachers more than halfway done. I'm not going to tell you exactly time, but hang in there with me. As disciples, we really need to continuously remind ourselves, and Christmas gives us a great opportunity to do this too, that this is more than just the ordinary birth of another baby. It's the fulfillment of all of that amazing, robust Old Testament prophecy written centuries before the birth of Jesus. Centuries. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Then there's the matter, the matter of the virgin conception and the birth. Then there's the matter of the impact of Christ, even in the world today, whether you're a disciple or not. I mean, we've been to Beijing, China, Hong Kong, China. We've been to Shenzhen, China. We've been to all different kinds of places in China. And even in China, you will hear Christmas carols. And we can go on and on with this stuff, but we embrace, we remind ourselves, we encourage, we, re, we encourage ourselves, see to it, the Hebrew writer would say, to encourage one another every day, that you do not drift away, that you do not lose heart, that you persevere. You persevere in the significance 
and the truth of God's word and the call of what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. God starts to save the world, guys, with the birth of a baby. God starts to save the world with the birth of a baby. Reminds me of Isaiah 55.8 in that long section of, of, of teaching from Isaiah and prophecy that's going out is that my thoughts, this is God speaking through Isaiah, reminding, reminding us, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways higher than yours. I want to encourage us this morning with this is that, man, have you lost the wonder? Have you lost the, the, just the mystery, the exciting mystery of our relationship with God? The examination and the intensity and the passion for God's word, waiting for God to communicate and speak into your life and into your heart. And if you have, we need to figure out how to help you get that back. And not one answer fits every situation. I have been there. I have gone through periods of dullness. I still have them once in a while, even today. I think a lot of that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. Because this is what God has, has built me to do. And I'm not going to dampen that. I may be 62, but I'm not ready to be put out to pasture with these shepherds. Are you, Ken? Not yet. When God comes, all little events take on amazing power. All little events take on amazing power. And I'm reminded of a story of our brother Rosario in southern Indiana, or southern India. Not Indiana, southern India. Very close, but yeah, different. We met Rosario and his wife Helen on a trip that we took to India back in the early 2000s. Very poor couple. Rosario was kind of working part-time for the church. This guy could not help but share Christ with everyone he met. It wasn't about meeting a number. It wasn't about the preacher telling him to go evangelize. It was who he was and what Christ had meant to him in his life. And he wanted so desperately for every single person in his family to become disciples. Helen, his wife, had sort of a full-time job grinding machine parts in this little shed in the back of their house. I fear Helen will probably die at an early age because going back there and looking at her shop, it wasn't any bigger than maybe four or, four or five of these things put together. And here she is grinding these metal parts with no face protection on, her hands coated in silver, or whatever that is, from the steel parts that she's grinding and using a wire brush to finish and all this other stuff, just not healthy. OSHA would shut that place down in a heartbeat. So we have this time, Rosario invites us out to his, meet his parents, and we go to his parents' home, and we meet his sisters, and we pray with them, and, and they're very excited to meet us, and they're serving Maybe a week or two after we got home from India, it was at 5 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and my phone rings. This was back before cell phones, so it was the kind that had the wire cable. 
for you younger people, look it up on the internet. You'll see pictures of it. It was called a landline, yeah. And it had this, it had these buttons that you push and it would actually call people, you know. So the phone rings at 5 a.m. Hello, Tim. This is your brother Rosario in India. What? Rosario, you, it, it, what's going on? Is everything okay? I don't know what time it was over there, but it was obviously beyond 5 a.m. because he was very excited, very ener energetic. And he says, I wanted to let you know that today my mother, she was baptized, and then she died. Yeah. She'd been battling cancer. But he was so excited about the fact that his mom became a disciple. Yeah. Didn't make the headlines. Wasn't on CNN. Didn't make news. Nobody spoke about it at the Democratic-Republican convention that year. But the angels in heaven were rejoicing. And thousands of brothers and sisters in India were rejoicing as well. Today, Rosario and Helen lead a small church in some backwater town in South India. I don't even know the name. It's got more consonants than vowels. <laughs> and I bumped into Rosario at the conference this year in, was that Orlando? And what was, what was Rosario doing in Orlando? He was ushering. He had on an usher vest. Remember the usher vest for those of you who went to the conference? And I have no idea how he raised enough money to fly from India to, to Orlando, but he said he wanted to be there with his brothers and sisters from around the world. And he wanted to serve because he's known all these people over the years that have been praying for him and his family. Now that, that is something worth emulating. When God comes near, little events take on amazing power. For the gospel written, for the outsider, as Luke's gospel is written, this is great news. Christmas announces that all places, all people, all events matter to God. Hebrew writer says that Christ had to share in our humanity. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, so that Christ could relate or so that we could relate to Christ. All people, all people, all of us matter to God and to one another. Not only did Christ share in our humanity, he demonstrated the ultimate presence, the ultimate presence of what being human is really all about. Because he was fully in step with the Father. He was fully in step with the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul would later be inspired to write in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Jesus had humanity. But in Jesus' humanity, and Jesus' call for our humanity is, If you see me, you see the Father. 
If you hear me speak, you hear the Father. You see me act. You hear the Father. You see the Father. Paul would also write, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. Rome, Syria, those things are temporary. Caesar, Quirinius, those guys are gone. They're temporary. And when Paul says we, we, we focus on what is not seen, he's not talking about some kind of wish or some kind of, man, I, I just, like, like a Disney World kind of movie. He's saying, no, we have our eyes fixed on the eternal. We know what is to come. Many of you have family coming in town over the course of the next week or two. You have your eyes set on that. You have your eyes set on what is not seen right now, right? It's the same way here that Paul is describing. We fix our eyes. We get focused on what is unseen. Not what is right here and what is set right before us. That's not what consumes our heart, our time, our energy. And that's a hard world to live in, guys. That's a hard world to live in. John 14, verse 23 through 24, Jesus, in talking to the crowd, he said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. If you are a disciple of Jesus right now, God is literally dwelling with you. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. You are not your own, God would tell us. You have been bought with a price. But comes with that all of the responsibility of being a child of God. And my encouragement to us this morning is to see the unseen to look beyond sometimes the visible things that are right in front of us and to begin with our own selves and to say, man, the, the thoughts that are in my brain, the thoughts that God would have for me are the thoughts and the attitudes of my heart, those things that, that God would approve in me are the words that I speak to one another, to my spouse, to my children. Are these the words that Christ would have me share with one another, the activities that I do with my life. You know, just I love the fact that every time we come here, we get to sit in a new home. We get to have different foods. You guys feed us. You house us. It's amazing. And no, we didn't bang Buffy, and I'm sticking around for lunch. I don't care. <laughs> Usually the first question after they see us, hey, did you bring Buffy? <laughs> didn't bring Buffy. Sorry. Verse 14 of this Luke chapter 2, it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on heaven peace to those on whom his favor rests. We are to be people of peace. Like Rob said, we are free. We are free. We need to, free our, we need to continuously work on freeing ourselves of things that make us more carnal and less godly. And it starts with even just the attitudes that we hold on, the, the opinions that we they cling to so dearly that don't matter because they're Rome, they're Syria, they're Augustus, they're Quirinius. 
This is the Christmas story. Verse 20 tells us that the shepherds return. The, the bottom of the barrel, if you will, on the social scale of life in first century Israel. The shepherds return glorifying God and singing praises to him. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I... No, I... Well, I... Well, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I... What the Lord has done for me. We got some work to do, but it doesn't matter. I heard a joyful song, or a joyful sound. God heard a joyful sound as well. So whether or not the birth of Jesus is an ordinary event depends on what we do with it. The opportunities are enormous. The challenges, they're there. But the ability, the potential of this ordinary place with ordinary people is limitless.